All right, this is our last session, and so we saved the best. We saved Paul for <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So we just we just want to invite Paul up here. This is going to be really cool. Really looking forward to it. It's yours. It's all yours with your own personal mic. Appreciate it. Recently well, disinfected. Morning. That was a. Oh, there, that's better. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's enough of that. Jeepers. Good to see you this morning, Pure Grace Church. Good to be back, home away from home. This is our fourth year at Pure Grace. We've been here, I think, each August. Maybe we had a July in there, I don't know. Each, each late summer of the last few years, each year gets better than the one before as far as I'm concerned. This year is particularly special because Miss Natasha is with me. My lovely wife is right back there. And for those of you who haven't been privileged to meet her, please do before you leave today. She's the best of, of uh, what I am, that's for sure. Uh, she doesn't get to travel with me all that often. She's here. I'm excited. It's been a fun weekend. That's an unusual weekend where you go minister and your and my family's with me. So our kids aren't here. Um, they always find other things to do, if if at all possible, than to hear dad. I think they've I think they've got a lifetime already in on hearing me speak. They have other things going on. Hasn't been a good conference. I really enjoyed myself yesterday. I enjoyed immensely hearing uh, Jeremiah and, and watching the, the Lord work through him and, and experiencing that. Um, it's, it's a privilege to watch the gift at work, and I, I, I've enjoyed that so much. And then in our session yesterday, I felt like, I feel like I'm in a place here where we've done all the groundwork over the years of kind of you getting to know me and me getting to know you, and so we're safe and so I like to challenge you a little bit. I like to go a little deeper um, into maybe things we've seen and peel the onion back a little bit. And when you peel the onion back, you cry. Sometimes it hurts. Um, but, but we're getting into some good, good fertile soil. We're going to do that again this morning, uh, in fact, as I have just been wrestling with some concepts and ideas, some of which have been coming out in my podcast if you don't listen to my daily podcast, I would encourage you to. It won't take very much of your time. It doesn't cost anything either. You can search wherever you listen to podcasts, search for Paul White Ministries. And we put up nine audio releases a week. We do seven. We do one every day that's just walking through the Bible, different passages of Scripture, different stories. And then we do two a week that are long sermons. We do one on Wednesday, one on Sunday. Our Wednesday sermon is from our Tuesday nights in Georgia. We do, we're studying the book of John. We've been at that for two years. We are in the 16th chapter, so we haven't been moving very fast. But you can, you can catch up by watching about 102 hours worth of material, literally, on YouTube, and then you'll be ready to go for next Tuesday night. We post those every Wednesday. And then on Sunday, sermons just like this. Wherever we go around the world, we post those sermons. And uh, check it out. I, it's my shameless plug. None of that costs you anything, but just a little bit of time. And hopefully, it feeds your soul. Are you ready for the Word today? All right, let's get started. I want to talk about when a stranger calls today. I kind of steal the title from a 70s horror flick, which is an odd way to open any sermon, I know. Um, I, I steal the title because I like the sound of it, but it has some very serious scriptural, biblical connotations I want to get into today. And, and actually, that kind of springboards my thinking into the fact that Hollywood 
the news media, printed literature, social media particularly, has really increased our awareness of crime, hate, homicide, addiction, kidnapping, to the point of the irrational. Now, what I mean about, by that is that if you only watched movies or the news or read newspapers or magazines, you would think that your chances of being killed are about one in two, that your chances of your kids getting kidnapped are maybe like one in three, that you are going to die of something horrendous, um, your, your safety is at risk, your house is going to be broken into, your car will be swiped, and, and you would have every reason to believe all of those things are true because you are flooded with information on how unsafe the world is. Now listen, I'm all for mitigating danger. Who wants to voluntarily walk into danger? No one. I'm all for doing whatever we can do to be safe. Uh, For instance, you have a very low, low percentage of being injured today in a car accident. Yet, you will put your seatbelt on. And you will do that, maybe out of habit. Um, Maybe out of the idea that if you do wreck, that seatbelt helps you survive that wreck immensely. Well, that wasn't enough. Then we put in airbags so that you could also hit someone with the front end of your car and have your nose broken by an airbag hitting you in the face. But a nose break is way better than your head than going through the windshield. And then we did even better. Technology got better and we did side airbag collision. So if someone hits you in the side, not even your fault, then you can get knocked across the front of your vehicle and whiplashed against your seatbelt as the side airbag saves your life yet again. My point is that we're always mitigating loss. And why not? You put insurance on your house, you put insurance on your car, you put insurance on your body. None of those things are bad. We're mitigating loss because we do want security and we do want safety. But what I think is that because we have such an idea that the world is so bad, the world is so violent, the world is so difficult, we have not only tried to be safe in our cars and our homes, which we should, but we've tried to be so safe from other people that we have an almost irrational fear of people we don't know. People we don't know, people we don't understand, people that don't talk like us, look like us, act like us, live near us, and therefore they, we, we do everything we can in our power to distance ourselves from them. And the, the truth is, in almost any statistical model, you still have almost no chance of being killed by homicide. You have almost no chance of being kidnapped. You have almost no chance of those personal things happening or your house being broken into. Yes, it happens, but almost never relative to the rest of your life. And yet, if we're not careful, we'll push ourselves so far away from the unknown to keep ourselves safe that we cut ourselves off from a very vital part of our Christianity, other people. You see, other people are an extremely vital part of who we are as believers because that's a big reason we exist as believers is other people. We exist to love them. We exist to accept them. We exist even to sacrifice for them because something powerful happens in us when we do that. When I lay down myself for you in whatever capacity, financially, mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, Not only are you blessed, hopefully, but I'm blessed as well. Why? Because as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not just a Christmas verse we use. That's a verse for our daily lives because that's part of who we are. Now, I think that because the securities went so high, safeties went so high, which I think is driven by the, we only hear the bad. And when we hear the bad, we think it's bad all the time. Because that's been driven so high, 
We've had things like, and this is supposed to be one of the, the genuine fruits of who we are as believers, things like hospitality have even went down to where it's not as comfortable to care. It's not as comfortable to take care. But I want to present to you this morning using the New Testament and the Old Testament passages of Scripture I think sometimes obscured, sometimes overlooked, that have a whole lot to do with how we treat the neighbor in the world, a whole lot to do with how we live. This has been a big thought of mine, a big process I've been going on. And then I want to take into a very, very old story, one that I think has been obscured and confused because we've accented the minor detail instead of missing the big detail. We do that a lot of times when we read the Bible. Try to help with that today. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. I want to read a couple of verses to get started from the 13th chapter. And I want to fight against stranger danger idea today, because that's kind of what we have. Stranger equals danger. I don't think that's the biblical mandate. I don't think that's the biblical way of navigating a world full of strangers. Because how many of you realize there are a whole lot more strangers in your life than friends, a whole lot more strangers than acquaintances or family. So we have to learn to deal in this world, and we have to learn to operate as believers and as children of God with that which might be construed as the outsider. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, first of all, I find it pretty interesting that the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter, starts with let brotherly love continue. It seems like it's thrown in out of nowhere. And when you remember that the chapters were not originally chapters when the author of Hebrews wrote the book of Hebrews, in other words, he didn't write chapter 12, verse 1, verse 2. He just writes writing. And then we break them down into chapters and verses. And sometimes that costs us because it costs us the flow of the conversation. We miss out because we don't really look at what the author was saying before. So, to be fair, let's go back two verses to the end of chapter 12. That'll give us just enough con- context, starting in verse 28 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is a grace kingdom verse. The world around us is shaking. The kingdom of God doesn't shake. We have grace in the midst of that kingdom. We are a part of the unshakable thing. So no matter what the world does around us right now, no matter how bad it shakes, no matter how bad things go, we know we're a part of the unshakable kingdom. And the fact that we're a part of the unshakable kingdom, we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Not ungodly fear. We're not scared of him. It's not some, he's going to come and get me. It's a godly fear. We would call this an awe. We sing it as our God is an awesome God. It just doesn't sound as good to say, our, we serve our God with a godly fear. He reigns from heaven on high. It also doesn't rhyme, but it, which helps if you're singing a song. But it would be the same basic thing. He is a God who is awesome, and we serve him with a godly fear. And then this interesting verse, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's how the chapter closes. Now, remember how the next chapter opens. So, I think the author has the same thought happening. We're in the middle of a kingdom. Our kingdom is not shakable. Everything around us is shakable. We dwell in grace, and we have an awesome God. And you know what our God is? He's a consuming fire. In other words, whatever's shaking, he's got it. He's going to eat up whatever shakes and needs to be eaten up. 
And whatever's left is us in grace, standing stable in an unshakable kingdom. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, let brotherly love continue. In the midst of a shaking world, where everything around you is in chaos and nothing's going right, rest assured that you're in Him, that you're unshakable, that God will consume all the stuff around you that is worth consuming and that needs consumed, that needs out of your way. Leave that in His hands. Why? Because He's an awesome God, and He's got it. He's a consuming fire. Therefore, your role is not to worry about the shaking, not to worry about the stuff, not to worry about the outside, but let brotherly love continue. What's my role as an unshakable person in the midst of a shakable world? Let brotherly love continue. Now, unfortunately, if you start at 13.1, you miss all of that. All you've got is let brotherly love continue, which is a great message, but one out of context that doesn't mean as much to us. So when should brotherly love continue? It's easy for brotherly love to continue when nothing's shaking. So if I'm around all my friends and my family and my church members and, and everyone in the echo chamber I agree with, it's easy to love. You know when I have to be reminded to let my brotherly love continue? When all hell breaks loose. When people are getting my attention that I don't understand, that I don't want to be around, that, I, that might even be a part of that consuming fire, but that's when I need reminded that brotherly love continue. And then a strange verse. Hebrews 13.2 is just weird. Think about it. Right in the middle of, hey, you're in an unshakable kingdom, man. The world's shaking around you. God's a consuming fire. You need to let brotherly love continue. Hey, by the way, sometimes you entertain angels unaware. So pay attention to strangers. And it's almost like an afterthought until you recognize what the author is, A, who he's speaking to. Who's this book written to? Hebrews, not you, but to Hebrews. In other words, its first audience are Jews living in the first century, post-resurrection, people who have Torah and Moses in their background, people who have animal sacrifice, earthly priesthood in their background, but they've come to Christ, and so they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and yet they have this Jewish heritage, and so therefore it's easy for the writer to really draw on their Jewish heritage, their Jewish understanding, their Torah understanding. That's what he's doing here. And then to draw on the imagery that they are accustomed to. And so while it looks odd to me, it looks like a weird verse, beware lest you entertain angels unaware. And all I've ever really thought about that is, hey, maybe, some, maybe I just encountered an angel today and didn't know it. That, that guy that I saw, and then I turned around and I couldn't see him anymore, maybe that was an angel. And you know what? Maybe it was. But I really don't think that's what the verse is about. Because why would I need warned about meeting someone that I can receive no warning about, and the moment I leave them, they're gone. Why, do I need, why did I need warned about a chance incidental spiritual encounter? I don't. I don't need warned about it, but I might need warned about encounters in which I discount who I'm encountering because I don't realize that who I'm encountering is the very person I was meant to encounter. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And here's why I think it applies to the Hebrew audience. Look at Leviticus chapter 25. If you want to understand the Hebrew mind in the context of the Bible, you have to spend some time in Torah. That's Genesis to Deuteronomy, what we in Christianity often call the Pentateuch. When you dig down into Torah, you're going to find a little bit better about what the Jewish mind was thinking when Jesus came. Jesus, in fact, quotes the book of Deuteronomy more than he quotes any other book of the Old Testament, which isn't odd 
he would quote the Torah to people who have as their text Torah. So you jump back into those Old Testament passages, deep back into the Torah, to figure out how the Hebrew mind was thinking. Now remember, we're talking about a people in Hebrews 13 who have that understanding, who have just been warned by the author, be careful that you don't entertain strangers unaware. Uh, when you entertain strangers, lest you be entertaining angels unaware. You, in other words, you don't know who it is that you just encountered. So treat everyone that you encounter as if they matter. Because if you fail to treat them as if they matter, you might be missing an opportunity to see something deep in the realm of the Spirit. That keeps us from judging people on externals or what we see or what we hear. And it allows us to flow in the Holy Spirit, but being ready in case that chance encounter is more than a chance encounter. Now, how many of you realize we can't do this if we go around the world, if we live every day with a stranger danger mentality? Everybody I meet's out to get me. Everybody I meet's against me. Everybody I meet wants to hurt me. Everybody I meet uh, believes differently than me. Everybody I meet needs avoided at all costs. I got to make you earn the smile. I got to make you earn my affection. I got to make you earn the attention. That's a dangerous way to live. And it's also very possible that we've missed more than just chance encounters, but very specific ones. Look at Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. And... The text says, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. That is an interesting verse. Listen to it again. If one of your own people falls into poverty, then I want you to help them as if they were a stranger. The mentality of Israel was so stranger-centric Take care of the stranger. Take care of the foreigner. Take care of the outsider. That whenever one of their own fell, let me slow down, make sure I say this, just to where we, I got to say it where I can process it properly, because this to me is backwards. You would think it would sound like this when you encounter a stranger, treat them as if they're part of your family. God doesn't say that. God says, when you encounter a fallen family member, treat him as good as you would the stranger. Now, you have to have a, a take care of strangers mentality for that to make any sense. It would be like me saying to you, I want you to take care of your kids as if they were someone else's kids. You go, well, I, I, I'm going to take care of my kids first. I'm not taking care of somebody else's kids. I'm not even thinking about someone else's kids. I'm taking care of mine, right? You, you should be taking care of yours, not someone else. If you have to take care of someone else's, that's one thing. My point is your heart is for yours. You don't like my kids like you like your kids, and you shouldn't. And I don't like your kids like I like my kids, and I shouldn't. And that's the way it is, right? They're close to your heart. So it's interesting that in Torah, when God says if a brother falls, how do you pick him up? You pick him up as if he were a stranger, which means my mentality of how I should treat a stranger has to be through the roof. I have to be thinking in terms of foreigners and strangers. And the reason why God did this this way, you can make a, you can make a pretty scholarly argument that the entire reason that Israel goes down into Egypt is so that they will always have an alien mentality and, a, and love for the stranger. You can make that argument that the, the whole slavery story is so that as they wander through the world, a world full of strangers, they'll never forget what it felt like to be a stranger. In fact, God tells them that over and over. You know why I want you to treat this guy this way? Because I don't want you to forget you were slaves in Egypt. I don't want you to forget you were aliens in Egypt. I don't want you to forget 
You were a stranger in it. Every time they turn around, God keeps saying to them, remember what you used to be? Remember what you used to be? So that they remember how they're supposed to be taking care of their neighbor. So the, that entire Egyptian experience, I think, is to lead them into that. Now, I've showed you the New Testament Hebrews. I'm trying to move quickly because I, I want to get to an ancient story today. And that's, what, that's the road that I'm on. And I, I, I kind of work backwards sometimes. I like to start in the New Testament because that's our foundation. See, our foundation is not Old Testament. Our foundation is Jesus. And I, I, I've heard people say Christianity's foundation is Judaism. No, Christianity's foundation is Jesus. That's why we're Christians. It's Christ and who he is. And so the foundation of everything I believe is in the man, Christ Jesus. And then the Bible complements what I believe about Jesus. I'm not a disciple of the Bible, by the way. I'm not a follower of the New Testament. I'm not a disciple of Paul or Peter or James or John. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so, and you are as well. This book didn't save you. I know it's very popular in churches to say, our foundation in this church is the Bible. Your foundation should never be the Bible. Your foundation should be Jesus. I know you say, well, that's just semantics. That's what they meant. There's a great big Bible with a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter to you in it. But there's a Jesus and everything in him matters to you. And that's what we're built on is Christ Jesus. So I like to go New Testament. We've got to lay your heart at ease, you know, because I found, especially in grace communities, if you open in the Old Testament, some people freak out because they're like, oh, man, I don't know where this is going to go, you know. It's like, this is going to get dangerous quick, because in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of stuff back there that's, you, you've got to take through Jesus. So I can lay your hearts down a little bit in the new, and then work back. So I want to take you back to a story, an ancient, ancient story that I think is preaching a message that rarely gets talked about, because we major on the minor in the middle of that story. To start with, go with me to Genesis chapter 18. When you go back to an old, old story, you're probably going to be in the first book of the Bible. And you're going to be looking at a lot of allegorical stuff, things that happen for an example for you. Not that you're going to go out and repeat them move by move, uh, word for word, but that the actions of the characters are trying to show you something that's going to bring itself to forbearance in the ministry and life of Jesus. And therefore, it's going to be important to you as you walk this out. In Genesis chapter 18, let's start in verse 1. Let's just read the story first, okay? Just five verses. Most of it's going to come flooding back to you as we start to read it. The Lord appeared to Abram by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I've now found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash my feet, wash and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you've come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. Now, I want you to note that Abram's been spending time with the Lord. He has been intimate with the Lord at the top of the chapter. And yet, without warning, here comes very clearly three strangers, three people that he does not know. He doesn't know their name. He doesn't know who they are. And yet, instantly, he receives them in. He washes off their feet. That's a, that's a sign of servanthood. Jesus will repeat that in John 13 when he washes his disciples' feet. He washes their feet. He puts fresh bread and food in front of them. In other words, he shares from his own pantry. He shares from his own field, and he doesn't even know their name. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know where they're from, and he doesn't know where they're going. 
Now, he's been spending time with the Lord, so his heart is sensitive, and his eyes are open, and his ears are tuned to the sound of maybe what God's doing in the earth. But this isn't a man who yet has that deep running relationship. This is a burgeoning relationship that Abram has with God. And he embraces the stranger that comes into his house. And immediately following this, he begins to receive the promise of who he is and of what is going to happen in his life. Now, skip ahead just a little bit in the chapters. I'm not going to take you through their whole conversation, but I want to show what happens at the very end. In Genesis chapter 18, the Bible says this. I just want to start in verse 16. The men rose up. From there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with him to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. If you were here yesterday, you heard us teach about righteousness and justice the interchangeableness of these two terms in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And not to sit here and review, but to just say this so you aren't totally lost if you weren't here. They're both the same thing, but they get translated at the whim of the translator. Righteousness and justice. In the New Testament, they never gave you justice, not one time. They gave you all righteousness, while the theme of the book is most certainly the justice of the Father. Now, watch that justice at work in one of the more overlooked passages, I think, from the Old Testament. Verse number 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because the sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, why do I say this is overlooked? I want you to think about it for a moment. We, we declare God to be omniscient, correct? God knows all. I will not disagree with you. God knows all. Then why does God need to visit Sodom in, the, in person to find out if what is being said about Sodom is true? That doesn't make any sense. He's God. He already knows if it's true. He knows if they're living wrong. He knows if he's going to judge them. Is he doing this for show? Is he doing this for Abraham? Is he doing this for you? Is he doing this for just some outward external reason to try to make himself look human when he goes into Sodom? Why does he need to go and find out? Now, the previous verse told you, I'm going to go down because I've heard the sin is very great. And I would ask you, what sin is it that's very great in Sodom? Now, you don't have to answer out loud. You've probably already got an idea that whatever you say might not be exactly what the Bible says because it's starting to turn in your head, why would he need to go visit in person if the sin was what I've always been told that it is? Because if the sin is what I've always been told that it is, God already knew about it, God doesn't like it, and God's going to wipe him off the face of the earth. But I'm here to show you that I don't believe that God go, has to go down to Sodom to figure out if sexuality is rampant or homosexuality is rampant or if fornication is rampant or adultery is rampant or violence is rampant. I think God has to show up as a stranger to find out how Sodom would treat someone they don't know. Because he gave the first test to Abraham. I'm going to walk up and see what Abraham does if he doesn't know me. And what did Abraham do? Killed the fatted calf, gave him bread, gave him wine, washed his feet, put himself as a servant before the Lord and said, whatever I have is yours. And the Lord said, go ahead and do that. In other words, do that. That's what I came for. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to Sodom, but I'm going to go just like this because I want to see 
if what I hear is true and what I hear is the cry of a people who are mistreated when they go to Sodom, that the Sodomites do not care for them nor give them affection nor give them love. And you might say, well, that's a good guess. How are we positive that that's the case? I don't know if we can be positive, but we can at least look at the story and see if we can figure it out. Go to Genesis 19. Now, I want you to read the Sodom story through new lenses today, okay? Because I'm, I'm here to present to you that I think we get lost in the Sodom story. I think we get lost in the middle of the town square when the men start beating on the door asking for sexual favors. And that's what we've done with the story. But watch carefully. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we're going to spend the night in the open square. Okay, time out. What in the world is the purpose of intentionally spending the night in the open square? You've just been invited into Lot's house for food and to have your feet washed. It sounds to me like I want to find out what would happen if I ran into someone else in this town. Because I've ran into Lot at the gate, but what would happen if I encountered just the old average everyday run-of-the-mill person in the middle of town? But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. He made him a feast, he baked bread, and they ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, now, right here is where we focus on Sodom. This is where we put the judgment of God, is on the following verses. The men of Sodom, old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. They called Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men. Stop right there. Don't read the rest of the verse, because I want to show you something. Because honestly, that's where we've already had enough, because this is a really sick story. It's wicked in every way. It's perverse in how they treat these strangers, and it's almost equally perverse in how Lot treats his own daughters. It's really hard to find anybody doing anything good in this story. I mean, Lot brought the strangers in and fed them. That's very much like his uncle Abraham just did. But outside of that, there's trouble, and that's as easy to just quit right here and go, I can see why God wants to wipe this place off the map. But now I want you to look at the rest of the verse because Lot, to me, unlocks the whole key behind what's happening in this chapter. In verse 8, don't do anything to these men since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. Look at that. The whole reason they're here is to see how you'll treat them. The whole reason they visited. Remember what God told Abraham? I'm going to go down and see if it's true. I'm going to go down and visit Sodom and see how they treat me. God knows everything. He doesn't need to go down to see if they're sinful. He needs to go down and see how they would treat him if they didn't know it was him. If he went in disguised as a man, and when he arrives, they treat him exactly like he heard they would, viciously, wickedly. So what happens to Sodom is a message for the world. Watch those around you. Open your heart of hospitality and love. 
Because you never know the person whom you're encountering may be the very person you need to encounter that day in order to spread the fruit of the kingdom or in order to have that individual. Listen, their deliverance walked through the gate. God had already told Abraham, if I can find ten righteous in that city. Now, what did we tell you yesterday about Sadek? Righteous can also be just, justice. What if God is saying to Abraham, not I want to find ten people who don't sin. Guys, you just saw Lot's not doing a very good job anyway. Right? You're never going to find, by the way, you're not going to find ten people who haven't sinned. You're not going to get down to the one. Not even Lot qualified under the terms of righteousness, but under the terms of just. Because, see, justice brings people to the level of God's mercy. And Lot was just because Lot's the only one that opened his house and allowed the men to come in. And Abraham had said, Lord, if you can find 50 righteous, let's change the wording. It's still Sadek. It's still the Hebrew. We're not, it's not wrong. God, if you can find 50 just people, 50 people that would do justice in Sodom, would you spare it? And God goes, I would spare it if I could find 50. God, if you could find 40. God, if you could find 30. God, this, is, this conversation goes on with, between Abraham and God. God, if you could find 20. God, I won't ask again. If you could find 10 people who show forth the justice of God, would you spare it? And God says, I would spare it if I could find 10. And you know what it tells me? Just 10 people in town that are just are greater than the mob of people who are unjust. Just 10 people is enough to spare an entire city from the wrath of God that comes upon those who suppress the truth in injustice, Romans 1. It doesn't take much. We don't have to have the whole place changed. We just have to be as just as we can be in every encounter we come into, in every situation we come into, because it might be the difference in life and death for someone. My being just in the, in, in the just arm of God to extend that mercy to bring that equality into people's lives, the understanding of who they are, the love of heaven, I might be the difference. I don't have to wait on there to be a thousand people. I just have to be ready and willing to open my heart and my hearth to, whom, to whatever possibilities are there, listening carefully to the voice of the Spirit, but watching carefully. So I, I don't think that God has to visit to see if they're sexually perverted. But he does need to visit as a man to see how they treat people they don't know. And how they treat people they don't know is, it doesn't bode well on them. Because Lot says, guys, don't you realize, this is the whole reason they're here. The whole reason they're here is to see what will happen. But I do believe that the heart of the Father is mercy. I do believe that the heart of the Father is that we show forth that justice in the world. And I think if we'll watch this walk through the New Testament, we'll see that this happens again in the New Testament. It's just sometimes missed. Matthew chapter 10, let me show you one. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, verse number, well, he's sending out his 12. Let me just give you context. He sends out the 12. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want you to minister the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead. Don't worry about what you take. Don't worry about how much money you have. Don't worry about how, much, how many cloaks you own. Just go. I'll provide for you. The worker's worthy of his food. Listen to verse 11 from Matthew 10. Whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. 
And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it's more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Now, based on what we know of why God judged Sodom, that verse is hard to swallow. Basically, based on our understanding, here's what Jesus says. I want you to go into a town, and I want you to meet people that don't know you. And I want you to see how they treat you. And if they accept you, great, bless them. And if they don't, shake the dust off your feet, because it's as bad as if they committed the sexual sin of sodomy against you. You go, whoa, goodness, that seems off the wall. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says it would be more tolerable for Sodom in the day than it is for that city. And I ask you, why would it be more tolerable for Sodom? What did Sodom get judged for? How they treated the stranger. So why does Jesus bring this up in Matthew 10? Because he's saying to you, you're the stranger in this situation. You're going out there. If you're rejected as a stranger, don't worry. I got your back. I'm just. I take care of strangers. It would be more tolerable for Sodom then it will be for the house that rejected you because I'm just and I take care of my kids. Now, the reality of that to me is that what Jesus was saying to his disciples is go out and be ready to be a stranger in a strange world and where the world receives you, pour your favor on them, pour your blessing on them. Don't ask how they're living. Don't ask what they've done. Don't ask for their past. If they open their arms and love you, my goodness, you pour everything you have of heaven into their life. Don't ask for their doctrine. Don't ask if they've privately invited Jesus into their life to be their Lord and Savior. Don't ask for their baptismal certificate. Just watch how they treat. And how they treat will make a big difference on what you do to pour peace and grace and favor and love into the heart of that place. But when they reject you, he doesn't say curse them. Because that's not the justice of God. You see, that's the justice of retribution. Oh, you guys don't want me? Your whole house is in trouble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call down fire. No. He says, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet. Move on. The investment was a little bit of your time and a little bit of your heart. I'll take care of the rest of it. Did you hear that? He says, it would be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for that town. You don't worry about it. So listen, we spend far too much time worrying about who accepts and rejects us. We're in a culture of acceptance and rejection. We're in a cancel culture. We're always trying to make sure we put on the right face. We're always trying to make sure we're accepted in the right circles. You're of the kingdom of God. That's beneath you. You don't have to spend one second trying to be accepted in a circle. You don't have to spend one second trying to be approved of people, particularly people you've never met. People whose faces you don't know, whose names you're not really sure of. You're not even sure if that profile's a real person. Why do you accept anything they have to say into your life, either positive or negative? That's not a reality for you. Shake the dust off of your feet. You don't have to go after them, but you don't have to continue to pour into their life. In that situation, you are the stranger. Now let's flip it. Now, take a look at what happens when 
they are the stranger because it's incredible to me. Jesus covers all of this. And why would he bother to cover it if it were not for A, it was the foundational teaching in Israel, how to deal with those who are outside, and B, it's a foundational teaching of Christianity, how you deal with those who are outside. Jesus actually spends time with his disciples, teaching them how they should deal with people that accept them and how they should deal with people that reject them. He compares it to Sodom. It's the ultimate story of when that happens. And then he puts himself into the situation. Look at Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, beginning in 35, Jesus says this. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. Did you catch that? I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, the just, those who understand the justice of God, will say to him, when, Lord, did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say unto them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, maybe we can start to see this age-old gospel story, because we've all heard this story. Maybe we can start to see it through a new lens. That Jesus says, from the voice of a king to his servants. Do you catch that? The king, that's the highest of the high. The king says to the subjects, you guys took me in when I was a stranger. You clothed me when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me medicine when I was sick. And they said, king, your honor, your majesty, I would remember running into you. I mean, you have the long flowing robes and the scepter and the crown and you sit on a throne. Trust me, this is the first time we've met. I've never known you before today. I've never seen you naked. I've never seen you hungry. Believe me, I would have rushed to put clothes on your back. Believe me, I would have rushed to give you food. I would have rushed to give you medicine. You needed help, I'm here for you. I love you. The truly just have already done it because the king says what you didn't understand was in my kingdom, my heart is in the man who is poor and naked and hungry and sick and a stranger. So when you did it to that guy, in effect, it's my kingdom. And whatever you do in my kingdom, you're doing to me. So the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. His kingdom is above all other kingdoms. And therefore, whatever happens in this kingdom happens to me. So if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And I believe if as children of God, we will keep that mentality, we will go through life looking for opportunities to be the arm of the kingdom. Because we will realize that every encounter is not coincidental encounter, is not chance encounter. Maybe we run across people that, that there's nothing that we can do. But our default position should not be there's nothing I can do. Our default position should be there's something I can give in the kingdom, in this encounter that makes all of the difference in the world. 
And I don't believe this is something we have to squeeze effort into, but I do believe it's something we have to be made aware of. Now, why do I think we have to be made aware of it? Well, for one, Genesis made them aware of it. Leviticus made them aware of it. Matthew 5 made them aware of it. Matthew 10 made them aware of it. Matthew 25 made them aware of it. And Hebrews 12 and 13 made them aware of it. It sounds to me like God knows we need reminded that when the world shakes, we should let brotherly love continue because it's going to be harder when the world's shaking. Oh, it's easy to love everybody when nothing's shaking. When everything's good and everyone I know agrees with me. Right? When everybody I know agrees with me, things seem better. <laughs> have you noticed that the greatest times in your life is when you didn't have those interpersonal conflicts? Because if I were to ask you, what's the greatest time in the world to be alive? If you could pick any time to be alive, did you know that a majority of people on the planet will pick a time when they were less than 10 years old? It doesn't even matter what year they were born in. So if you were born in 1940 and I go, what would be a great, what do you think is the best time to be alive in America? They go, ah, about 1950. If I were to ask a kid born, this is a fact. This is a psychological fact. If you ask a kid born 1980, what's the best time to be alive, you think, in the history of the world? They go, probably like 1990. That was really good. It was a really great time. You know why we do that? We're young. We're innocent. We have no responsibilities. We have no conflicts. We haven't met people we don't like yet. You know one of the biggest reasons we think the world's going to hell? Because we got a whole lot more people we don't agree with. There's a whole lot more people I don't really think are very smart. What's wrong with these idiots? What's wrong with this world? Why is everybody, here's what we say, why is everybody going crazy? You never notice that? Not why am I going crazy while the rest of the world goes crazy. It's why is everybody going crazy? Are you going crazy? No, I'm wondering why everybody else is going crazy. When was a time when they weren't crazy? I don't know. Somewhat, when I was a kid, people weren't crazy. That ought to tell you something. Well, I don't know. When I was a kid, things seemed simpler. Well, yeah, they seemed simpler. You hadn't had time to run into people that disagreed with you, that didn't like you, that didn't approve of you. And then when you do, it seems like the world's a lot rougher place. Listen, as long as the world's not shaking, you're not going to need reminded to let brotherly love continue. Because it's easy. You don't have any conflicts. But when the world goes to hell around you, the Holy Spirit has to remind you, hey, let brotherly love continue. And when you say to him, what does it look like? His response is, be careful, lest you entertain angels unaware when you meet a stranger. So I say to you, it's not the book of Hebrews saying to you, watch out, you might find meet an invisible person today. And they'll become visible when they see you, and then you'll turn around and they're gone. Now that might happen. Praise God if that happens. I don't know why it happened to you. I guess maybe if you needed something and the person appeared and gave you something and then disappeared, you could go, wow, that was great. I needed that angel. Otherwise, I don't know what the point is. But I do know, according to the context, if the world is shaking, you're going to have to be reminded to let brotherly love continue because you're going to encounter the people that don't look like you, think like you, act like you, talk like you, love what you love. Feel what you feel, and be careful, because you might be in Sodom, and God wants to see if he'll open your door. That's how a Hebrew would have read that text, because in their mind, the place that got judged 
for treating the strangers wrong was Sodom. And when they read that verse, they go, be careful. You have no idea if the next person you encounter is the person you woke up this morning to encounter. Where this has helped me in my own personal life is I get to meet a lot of people, traveling around, ministering in churches and wherever, meet a lot of people, lots of different backgrounds. I have absolutely no idea what your past is. I have no idea what you've went through. That helps me to have some compassion because I don't know what your yesterday looked like. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to make the moment about me. So what I try to do is remind myself that you have no idea who just walked in front of you. And you have no idea why they just walked in front of you. And it might be that that's the encounter you came to Mobile, Alabama for. And it might be the reason you went to that gas station today. And it might be you think you went to the grocery store for eggs and milk. But there was a stranger whose path you crossed. And I know you didn't have a good day. And I know you're cranky. And I know it's 2020. And that's the easiest excuse anybody ever needed. Amen. But remember, it's 2020 for him too. And in his 2020, all hell really may have just broken loose. I mean, for you, you're ticked off because you watched a Facebook meme. This guy might have just lost a loved one. You really have no idea what you're walking across at every moment of every day. Now, you want to watch this in perfect action? Watch Jesus. Now, I know we could say that about anything, but it will help when you watch him because you'll watch him cross paths with those whom nobody else crosses paths with and literally take a step off the path to chase them off the beaten path. There is no good reason why Jesus ever has to touch anybody especially when you find out that he can speak the word and my servant is healed. Remember that moment? If you speak the word and my servant is healed. Well, my goodness, if you could just speak the word and the servant is healed, why would you dare touch a leper? Leprosy is literally contact-oriented uh, contact contagion. If I touch you and you have leprosy, I am probably going to carry that leprosy. That leprosy that is killing you can now kill me. And our easy answer is, well, Jesus wasn't worried because he knew he was Jesus. But that's us looking at it from the outside. What if you're the leper? You want to know why he touches the leper? Because nobody touches lepers. And can you imagine how you would feel in the physical if no one ever touched you? Ever. And not only if they didn't touch you out of affection or lust, but they didn't touch you out of fear. And when they got near you, they took a step back. And I don't mean because it's 2020. I mean because you're you. Maybe it's a smell or a look. Or how would your life shift? <laughs> it's indescribable. And then a man steps off the path and puts his arm around you. And pulls you in close. Because the Bible says he touched lepers. I don't think he was just. No. He pulls them in close because it's the thing no one else will give them. When the stranger calls Jesus, Jesus calls the stranger. And finds out what it is. What can I, this is the question he asks all the time. What is it that I can do for you?
The servant mentality Jesus displays in John 13 is not a new mentality. Wash feet, it's not new. It was shocking, but it wasn't a new mentality. The disciples weren't shocked because Jesus showed himself to be a servant. They were shocked because he went so low to be a servant. See, servant mentality is Jesus. They've watched him touch lepers, and they've watched him eat with the uninhabitable, the untouchables. They've watched him care for those who no one else cares for. Watching Jesus do those kinds of things has become passe. And then he goes even farther, and he gets on his knees, and he washes feet like the lowest servant at the door of the house, the one who's so filthy, who's so low on the totem pole, they don't even get to wait on people at the table. They have to meet them at the door and wash the dung off of their feet that they picked up in the street. And Jesus, in his final act of servanthood, descends to the lowest form of servant on the planet in his day and says, in case you're confused on what it looks like to love people, slip your sandals off and I'll show you. And Peter says, no way. There's no way I'm going to let you do that to me. And it's not because Peter's cocky. It's not because Peter's selfish. It's because Peter's human. And we hate to see people debase themselves like Jesus is. Especially when they're the king. When did I see you naked? When did I see you sick? You've done it to the least of these. You, least of these, you've done it unto me. We don't want to see that. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. You know what that means? If I don't wash your feet, you're not going to know that washing feet's what we do. And if you don't know that washing feet's what we do, you're not going to go out and represent me. Because what we do is wash feet. But see, Peter, we don't just wash feet of kings. We wash the dung off of people's feet at the door. We meet the stranger. We love them. Now, here's the danger. You run a great risk when you take in the stranger. Because every now and then, the stranger is out to tear your heart out. Every now and then, the stranger puts you on a cross and puts a spear through your heart and puts nails through your hands and your feet. The cross is more than God showing you that he loved you enough to die for your sins. The cross is God showing you what can happen when you give your heart to strangers. Is sometimes they will tear it in half and the blood and water will flow. But the good news is there's a new creation three days away from the cross. So even if you take in the stranger that bruises your heart, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted and set at liberty them that are bruised. So no matter what's been done to you in this journey, there's life and there's healing in the man, Christ Jesus. We have this wonderful privilege in this hour. This is our hour. And it's not our hour to rise up and show everybody how great we are. It's our hour to get down on our knees and wash someone's feet. That's our opportunity. Our opportunity, because that in the kingdom is how we show the greatness of our king, is loving the unlovable and caring for the uncareable and understanding those who are not receiving any understanding. And we run the risk. Yes, we do. Man, we run the risk. It's dangerous to love people. Because when you love them, they might hurt you. And you know what else happens? You lose them. You lose them. I, I almost completely avoided ministry 
And I tried more than once. My feelings on that is if you are called, you'll be in it because you won't be able to do anything else. And I almost completely avoided it because I watched it. I watched my dad, who was a pastor and an evangelist from before I was born. And I watched him and went with him eight nights a week to church. Whenever, the, you know, the Beatles eight days a week, that was us. I, but I watched the pain and the heartache from a man who just poured his heart out to people. He just loved people. And I watched him stomp on it and beat him and threaten to fight him in the parking lot of church over sermons, over, over disagreements theologically, over not thinking that the action was done properly. Or it was never anything smart because it's never smart when you're the one hurting anyway. And I watched that and, and said, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'll preach, but I'm not going to get close to people. And it took me years, and I still to this day, I'm preaching. I'm, I'm always preaching to me, by the way. I never have delivered a word yet that doesn't, doesn't, it goes in my heart. I wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, and then it punches and soothes and scrapes and washes me all the way out. Does all of that. I don't ever talk to somebody about loving the stranger where I I'm not wrestling with all the times I've pushed them away because I'm sick of being hurt and I'm sick of fighting with people and I'm tired of arguing and I'm tired of the encounter and I'm tired of the pain and, I'm, and it got to where I was tired of the church. You go, well, frankly, I don't need them. I can deliver the gospel without the, the hassle. The Holy Spirit began to show me that the difficulty with that is that it's easy to become a Pharisee who knows the word, but to whom people have become an interference to serving God. And I don't want people to be an interference to serving God. I don't want loving people to be an interference to serving God. I live in the middle of a shaky world, a shaky world of ministry. And I don't want to push people arm's length away because I'm scared to get close to them. I want to embrace them and love them. I believe there's healing for that hurt. He says, I'll bind up the brokenhearted. I'll say this in close. How many of you realize if you're going to experience the greatest amount of love that it's possible to experience, you're going to have to open yourself up to the very possibility, slim as it may be, but real, that you are going to lose everything. The very real possibility that the person you linked up with will hurt you, will break your heart. The very possibility that the child that you love will not survive. The very, we it's, no one wants to talk about it. It's part of love. It's part of the danger of it, but it's part of the exhilaration of it. It's part of the thrill of it. It's part of why we do it is because the reward is just so high that we're willing to live with the risk of pain even if we know the pain will happen. We would even walk into it if we knew it would end bad because the thrill of the love is so great and so high. Well, that is the risk he took on us, and it is the very difficult risk he asks of us. And I know it's not fun to think of, but it's the very reality of who we are. And I just want to tell you this, the reward is so blasted high of loving people that it's, it really does. And I'm a man speaking from experience who I've been hurt to the point of I'm ready to quit more than once. 
but the joy of loving people is so high, I can tell you with all my heart, it is worth the pain of it being rejected by the wrong stranger. So I resolve today to keep swinging open the door to the stranger. Knowing that every one, one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand of them are going to try to set my living room on fire. But the joy of the other 999 is so worth it that it shows me why I'm producing fruit in the first place. And I think that's the heart of God's children. Do you believe that? Father, I thank you for today. Dad, in classic fashion, I've, I've tried to be true to the word. I've tried to be true to the expositing of it. But I've tried to lay my heart out in front of your, your kids because they're worth it. So I ask you in the name of Jesus, Father, to speak words of life into us in the middle of a shaky world. The only reason why the author needed to remind them to let brotherly love continue is because it's the hardest when the world's on fire. It's easy to just shelter up and turtle up and close the door. But it's not your heart. So thank you for that revelation today. Help me, help me, Father, to apply it. Let the healing continue and help this house to apply it and every person in it. I think you've ministered powerful things in this conference and you've said things to hearts that are taking root and are going to grow and explode. And I just ask you to do that in your time. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Pure Grace Church. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope to see you again soon. Pastor. If you will, can you and Natasha come up? Is that okay if we pray for you guys? Um, I'd like to pray for you if you guys just want to stretch your hands out or, or whatever that looks like. Uh, we just want to pray for them before they leave, and I'm, I'm glad you guys both got to come. Um, glad you got to come this time. <clears throat> Father, I just pray right now, Lord, for Paul and Natasha and their family, <clears throat> Lord, that you would just uh, continue to pour out your blessings on them. Um, Lord, you know what an influence Paul has been on me and on on and by default our church, and has been and has been one of the clearest voices of grace, which is the gospel, um, for me in my life. And so, Lord, I just pray that you continue just to give him the revelation that you you always seem to do so, with perfect timing. Um, I know for me personally, and I'm sure for many others here, Lord, I just pray that that continued revelation that as he goes. Um, that you'll just you'll you'll make it just as exciting every time, just as just as passionate, just as as loving every time. Every every time he speaks at every place, um, Lord, that you just continue to pour out your blessings like I know that you will. Lord, I just thank you for them both. Lord, I know that he does not do this alone. That Natasha's there right there with him, and I know that that makes a huge difference in a man's life, and it makes a huge difference for a couple to to work together and to love each other through uh, traveling and. And uh, going different places and family and all these different things that come into play, Lord. Um, you were there keeping them together. You were the glue that is holding this family. And, Lord, I thank you for that. And so, Father, we just uh, we bless them as a church. Um, Lord, I bless them personally as, as, as the pastor of this church, Lord. Um, and just as they go, just be with them in everything that they do and lead them, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I love you guys. Uh, if you got...
have a minute just to, to talk to Paul and Natasha before they leave. They'll be back there just for a minute, and he's got some books and stuff back there y'all can check out. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and take a nap and cry. So <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just going to take a nap. All right. All right. Love you guys. Y'all have a good day.